challenging phonies. You got any phonies in your life? Let's say that you've got a business partner. His name is Bill. And Bill loves to talk about the Lord. In fact, he has a big old Bible right on his desk there in the office. He likes to talk about how this business is built on biblical principles. Bill even leads a Bible study on Monday mornings for people in the staff who want to come. But you happen to know that Bill falsifies insurance claims that he lies to people and deceives them. You happen to know that there's duplicity at the core. What are you supposed to do about that? Or let's say that your husband is a fine member of the church, at least people accept him and love him. He, let's say he plays an instrument on the worship team. And... Uh, He's well-known by the staff and, and other leaders in the church. But at home, at home, he is demeaning and derogatory to you and the kids. He's verbally abusive. Oh, he's Mr. Rogers at church. But at home, he's like a brute beast. How are you supposed to feel about that? What are you supposed to do? Or let's say that you teach at a school where there's a basketball coach who makes a profession to be a Christian and he's well-liked and does a great job as a coach overall, but, but you happen to know, although he professes to be a strong believer, you know that behind closed doors in the locker room, he is incredibly vulgar and uses the worst of profanity. What should you do about that? Or let's give one more scenario. Let's suppose that you're in a wonderful small group, people who love one another, you're really doing life together, like it ought to be, and the church is a very healthy group, and there's a dear woman in your group who's a widow. Her husband died about two years ago. She's liked by everyone, but she's finally met a new person, a, a man that she just really is falling in love with. She brought him to the small group, brought him to church, but you just discovered three weeks ago that they moved in together without being married. What should you do about that? You see, the thing that all of those scenarios have in common, they actually have two things in common. They all deal with some level of hypocrisy or phoniness. By the way, the word hypocrite comes from the ancient Greek theater. Actors would wear mask on stage. And so you'd have an actor who in one act would wear a mask of comedy. And then just a few minutes later, the very same actor in a different scene would wear a mask of tragedy. Same actor, two faces. A hypocrite is someone who professes one thing, professes to believe something, but in their actions, words, and attitudes... They actually portray something very different. We call that hurt person a hypocrite. And that's what all of these scenarios have in common. There's some sort of phoniness or hypocrisy going on. But the second thing those scenarios have in common is that for those who are aware of that hypocrisy, it really creates stress and difficulty. Because you're left with this question, particularly as a follower of Jesus, what am I supposed to do 
about this. And so tension is created. We're in a series right now called Dealing with Difficult People. Last week, we talked about responding to critics. I've gotten so much positive feedback from that, and I I appreciate your input. And today, we want to continue in this series by talking about challenging phonies. Now, I'm convinced of one thing. We all have people in our lives like this. And it creates this disorientation, this question mark, what should I be doing about this? So I know this message is going to be relevant But also on a personal level, we all struggle. Can we be honest? We all struggle with duplicity at times. None of us lives up totally to what we claim to believe and what we really desire to be. So if you have your Bible open to Matthew 23, let's go on this biblical journey together. I invite you to take out your note sheet, jot a few ideas down. And let's learn some lessons about what Jesus has to teach all of us about dealing with the phony people that are in our lives. Verse 1 in Matthew 23 begins like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're representatives of Moses. That's what he means by that. And they're the interpreters of the law of Moses. That's what that statement means. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But, big caveat Jesus gives, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. As we jump in here, I want to share with you five characteristics that Jesus gives about hypocrites. But I want to warn you, if you're new to the Bible, and perhaps you've never read Matthew 23 before, I hope your seatbelt is buckled. Because if you thought Jesus just wandered through meadows picking daisies, and talking about the birds of the air, and having a sort of otherworldly look, you're about to get the shock of your life. When it came to people who were phony and hypocritical, Jesus gave some of his harshest words they ever gave. So the first thing we learn here is that hypocrites don't just occasionally stumble and fall, they make no attempt to be consistent. Now I begin with that for one simple reason. I don't want anybody walking out today from any of our four campuses and thinking that, oh, I should feel lousy about myself because I'm not always consistent or I sometimes fail and I fall short but I really don't want to. We all do that. If you, listen, if you've got a pulse, you fall short. We fall short of the ideal that God has designed us for. That's just a part of being human. But when we talk about hypocrites, we're talking about people who are blatantly phony. They're not making any attempt to live with integrity. And I want to tell you one thing I've observed about that in this culture. I assume this is true of every culture. But I know one thing about our culture. Almost anything will be tolerated in our culture except hypocrites. You'd better live pretty close to what you claim for yourself. Or it is disgusting to both believers and unbelievers in our culture. Hypocrisy is something people simply don't want to tolerate. 
The second thing I would say here is that hypocrites make life miserable for others with their double standard. Look with me at verse 4. It says, They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is talking here to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he was referring to things like, look, you guys try to get people to obey the Ten Commandments, but you yourselves are plotting murder. They were plotting murder against Jesus. You try to get everybody to be faithful in tithing, but you yourselves aren't fulfilling the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and the love of God. You talk about care for the poor, Pharisees, but your own parents are living in poverty, Jesus taught, and you're not even helping them. So there's duplicity at the core. Hey, parents, can I say just a special word to you? All of you at all of our campuses who have children of any age, can I tell you something that's important about parenthood? You'd better deal with the hypocrisy in your life. I was a student pastor for many years, uh, what we called a youth minister or a youth pastor. And boy, I want to tell you, having done that for a number of years when I was a much younger man, I got a ton of respect for any man or woman who's working with teenagers or young people, all right? It's a tough time of life. They're going through so many changes And there's so much confusion often at that age. My hat is off to everyone who works with young people. But you know what I concluded during those years? You can judge this any way you want. I concluded that the biggest struggle I had with trying to disciple teenagers was their parents. Seriously. Now, obviously, it wasn't true in every case. You had a number of parents who were very consistent, very godly, and set a great example But I was trying to get young people to get into the Word of God and study it, to have a quiet time, to become people of prayer, to share their faith in some way, to get involved in service, to be consistent in their fellowship. And trying to get them to do those things when their parents weren't doing them was almost impossible. You see, children have a way of doing what they see, not what we tell them to do. Okay? Once when I was a youth pastor, a young man came to me, just a teenager, probably 16, very distraught. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I just learned that my father is having an affair with another woman. He said, you know the thing that really galls me? And he was just so vulnerable and just, he spit this out so vehemently. I mean, it was kind of shocking how, how angry he was at this discovery. He said, my dad jumps down my throat when I tell a joke that he considers the least bit off color. He critiques me constantly for my clothes as being too edgy and for my music as being too out there. He criticizes my friends. And all the while, he's living this total life of hypocrisy. And then he spit it out. What a expletive deleted What a hypocrite. I'll never forget that. Parents, you have an incredible responsibility to try to live what you preach. To try to be consistent. Okay? And take take it seriously. Now again, nobody's perfect with that. Everybody falls short. But 
you need to take that task very, very, very seriously. Hypocrites judge others by a standard they aren't willing to live by themselves. Third, we can learn from this passage that hypocrites are concerned about image more than character. Look at this pithy little statement in verse 5 here. Jesus said, everything they do is done for men to see. Have you ever known anybody who's into image management? It's all about how it's going to look. It's not about what's real. It's not about what's true or authentic. It's all about the image that I want to project. One secret service agent who served a previous president that I'll leave unnamed, okay? As you think I'm getting political. And this particular president, uh, he and his wife were having problems at the time. And in fact, there was a period of time they... They were living in separate quarters in the White House. But in public, on all the shows and all the news clips, they were smiling and strolling across the White House lawn hand in hand and all the time bitter enemies behind closed doors. And he was a Secret Service agent during this time. He said, once I'll never forget, um, they were behind doors about to walk out. There's all these cameras there ready to capture them when they walked through the door. They came from their separate places. He said, I'll never forget, the wife reached over, took her husband's hand, said, well, it's showtime. And then they walked through the door, smiling, hand in hand, for the cameras. Jesus said, that's, that's what a hypocrite does. A hypocrite is into image management. But before we get too critical... I think we ought to look at ourselves, shouldn't we, as Christians? You know what I've come to believe as a follower of Jesus now for 30-something years? I've come to believe that when you're around the church for a while, you can get pretty good at knowing what pleases people. You get pretty good at faking it. You learn that just a few well-placed, praise the Lord... Few of those can really make people think you love the Lord. You can learn that by dropping a word here and there about your quiet time. And I was praying the other day, and oh, I was listening to this Christian song when I was driving down the road. And it's just a few well placed words about the Lord speaking into my life these days can make people think you're deep. But I think we all need to ask ourselves regularly along this journey what is God really doing in my life? Here's a question that I ask myself regularly. Lord, am I closer to you today than I was two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago? Am I growing in my relationship with you? See, we ought to be a lot more concerned about what's on the inside and what's real than managing our image to others. Let's just make a decision, congregation. Let's make a decision at all of our campuses that we're going to be people of authenticity because there's nothing that turns an explorer of Jesus off faster than seeing phoniness in the church. The next thing we see here from Jesus, number four in your notes, is that hypocrites are proud of status symbols. Look at verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets 
and the most important seats in the synagogues. Now, we understand that, right? Because we're the same way. These Pharisees love seats of honor. They love the the status that went with that. And we all love to have the best seats in the house, don't we? It makes us feel important. Recently, uh, I was given some tickets to a basketball game, a Siena game down at the Times Union Center. In case you guys don't know, I am a college basketball junkie. I'll admit it. I'm in therapy. I go to an AA group for recovering college basketball fans. I mean, uh, it's really great. But you can imagine at this time of year, I mean, I am just going crazy with excitement with all this college basketball going on. Well, a few weeks ago, went down to the Times Union Center, and I invited a couple of friends from the staff to go along. I invited uh, uh, Mike North, who's our creative arts director, and Pastor Will Babarsi to go along with me. And these tickets were for box seats. I mean, these weren't like seats in the nosebleed out in the regular. We had box seats, baby. I want you to know I was looking forward to this. And so we arrived early. I went in this room where the box seats were, and nobody was in there yet. We were the first to arrive. And this particular box had 15 to 18 seats, theater-style, very comfortable seats. What a great way to watch the game. And we couldn't believe it. When we walked in that room, it was laden with food and refreshments. Wow, big Big old ice chest with all kinds of drinks iced down. Lots of food in there. I said, "Woo, we're going to be living high on the hog tonight, guys. What a way to watch the game. And so since the game was like 20 minutes away from tip-off, we began to dig in and enjoy those refreshments. We were just having a great time stuffing our faces. And a few minutes later, a Times Union worker, a staff, knocked on the door, looked in, and she said, Guys, I hate to tell you this, but all this food and drinks were put in the wrong room. she said i've got to move it all to the correct room i said can we go with the food you know uh, we love to have these amazing seats we love to have the status and all that goes with that and and jesus said that the pharisees are like that human nature just wants the good seats and The status symbols. Jesus goes on in verse 7. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. Now, boy, that's an intriguing passage, isn't it? Wow. That does not mean that we shouldn't show appropriate respect to leaders, nor does it mean that it's inappropriate for a leader to have some kind of title. It just means that we acknowledge, look, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We've all been redeemed by the Lord in exactly the same way. And we acknowledge that all of us are imperfect and our ultimate leader is Jesus Christ. By the way, I want to say, that's one of the reasons we don't at any of our campuses make a big deal about titles. Have you noticed that? 
if you walk around, you're not going to see a lot of titles around. We, we have people on staff who have earned doctoral degrees and master's degrees, all kinds of education and accomplishments, but we, we don't make a big deal of titles. So you don't need to call me Reverend Rex. Some people do that in humor, Reverend Rex, how are you? But you don't need, we don't call each other Reverend Rex or the right Reverend Dr. Ballard or, um, you know, uh, Your Highness Mike Adams or Bishop Babarsi or, or, you know, Your Eminent Archbishop Yim. We, we, don't, we don't go around doing that because we're not into titles. Look, look at what Jesus said here in the next verses. The greatest among you will be your servant. Isn't that cool? Well, you talk about a lesson in servant leadership. The greatest among you should not be into making himself or herself look great. It should be in raising others up and trying to empower other people and serving them. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is making it clear. He's throwing down the gauntlet. The way up is down. The way up is down. But the way down is up. And if you don't humble yourself, trust me, God has a million different ways that he can humble you. It's a whole lot better to humble yourself. But this fifth thing, I believe, is the most troubling characteristic of all of hypocrites. That is that hypocrites prevent others from entering the kingdom. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Rank hypocrisy in the church turns a lot of people away. Nothing turns people away and does more damage to the kingdom of God than rank hypocrisy, especially among leaders in the church. I was so upset earlier this month, March the 6th, when Christianity Today and another of uh, preeminent Christian news sources reported that Mr. Bill Gothard, had been put on administrative leave by his board of the Institute of Basic Life Principles, a ministry that he founded many years ago and has done thousands and tens of thousands of seminars around the world. And uh, uh, Mr. Gothard is 79 years old. And a week after he was put on administrative leave, he resigned under 34 allegations of sexual harassment and four allegations of molestation. Now, the Bible says, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. You see, the Lord knows that people can make things up, right? But 34 allegations, all seeming to follow the same kind of pattern, It's tragic. And see, one of the reasons is not only because of the devastation it does to those victims. We need to pray for them. But also because the unbelieving world hears that and they go, here we go again. I knew it. Nobody's true blue. Nobody's the real deal. Nobody has integrity. 
And they become so cynical. It's like Frederick Nietzsche, the atheistic philosopher, said to Christian leaders in his day, if I'm to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a little more redeemed. It's a problem. A man was being tailgated by a stressed out woman on a busy boulevard and when the light turned yellow, he did the right thing. He stopped at the intersection, although he could have sped through and made it. And the tailgating woman behind was furious. She blared her horn in anger and screamed at the top of her lungs, dropping her cell phone and makeup in the process. And while she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and a very serious police officer ordered her out of the car where she was handcuffed, taken down to the station where she was put officially under arrest, fingerprinted, processed, and put in a holding cell. Two hours later, an officer came and let her out, brought her back to the processing area where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. And he said, ma'am, I am so sorry about this arrest. I was wrong to do it. But he said, you've got to understand, when I pulled up behind you at that intersection, you were giving the finger to the guy in front of you. You were cursing at the top of your lungs and blaring your horn in anger. And I just couldn't help but notice the what would Jesus do bumper sticker on the left side of your car. And the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker on the right side of your car. And the choose life license plate holder on the back. And that beautiful chrome plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. Naturally, I assumed you'd stolen the vehicle. (laughs) Nietzsche said, if I'm to believe in your redeemer, you'll have to look more redeemed. And you object and you say, but Pastor Rex, don't you know we're not accepting, we're not asking people to accept Christians. We're asking them to accept Christ. I understand. I get it. And Christ is not phony. But I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. If people look at our lives over a period of time and they do not see genuine authenticity, I think they have a right to doubt our message. We'll never be perfect. But we can be real. We can be authentic. We can be on the journey of growth. And that is incredibly important. Jesus goes on in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, you know what I find interesting? Jesus was full of mercy toward people who are apparently far from God. The woman at the well in Sychar, the woman caught in adultery, all of the tax collectors and sinners that he hung out with and ate with, full of mercy. But when it came to religious people who were hypocritical, Jesus gave his harshest words. He called them snakes He said, you're a brood of vipers. He said, you're whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Wow. If you were watching a lifeguard at work, and he was swimming out to a drowning victim, and as he approached the drowning victim, the panicked person drowning who could not swim grabbed a hold of the lifeguard and began to take him down. If you observed as that lifeguard punched the guy in the face and knocked him out and then slowly drug him back to shore, you would think that was the cruelest thing you'd ever seen. That's all you saw. 
But if you really understood what was going on, I can't save him unless I do this. You would understand that's the kindest thing ever. And that's the nature of what Jesus is doing here. Yeah, he's hitting hard. He's being blunt. But he's, these people have watched him teach. They've heard his message for three years now. This is just before the cross when this is occurring. And Jesus is making one last effort to try to get their attention so that they will turn to him for salvation. But they seem to not have ears to hear. His real heart is contained in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's Jesus' heart for anyone who is far from him or anyone who's going through a season even of hypocrisy. Now, as we move toward our wrap-up today, I want to ask you a big question. What are you supposed to do if you have phonies in your life? And they're making life difficult. They're causing stress. You wonder what to do about it because you see the inconsistency and the duplicity. I'm going to give you a line right now, and we're going to look at a few verses very quickly. I want to give you a line right now that I want you to write down. It's not in your notes. It's not on the screens because... When I created the notes, I hadn't created the line yet. But here's the line. I like it. I wish I'd had it when the notes were made. Don't cast stones. Cast a lifeline. There's the lesson to take away. There's the lesson to take home today. Don't cast stones. Cast a lifeline. Now let me unpack that with you for just a few minutes as we prepare for the wrap-up of the message. There's a wonderful passage in Galatians 6. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Now in my Bible, I circled that word, restore. Because that is a key word there. God's desire is never just to condemn someone or bash them. Any kind of loving confrontation that the Lord calls us to is all with a motive to save, to redeem, and to restore. God wants us to cast not stones, but a lifeline. Think of it like this. Let's imagine that you're hiking with some friends at Thatcher's Park over at Indian Ladder, and there's some marvelous trails there, but some of them are a bit treacherous, and if you're not careful, you, you could fall. And, and there are precipices there that, that are over 100 feet down, and you could fall over the edge and break your neck. <clears throat> well, let's suppose that one member of your party, his name is Doug. Doug is a big talker, and he's having a great time with the 20 or so of you who are out hiking on this beautiful day in Thatcher's Park. And, and Doug is talking in a real animated way like he usually does. And you observe that without him realizing it, Doug is inching closer and closer to the edge of the precipice and he's about to plummet over the edge and break his neck. What should you do? Should you gossip to a friend? Psst, hey. Watch this. Doug is about to meet his maker. (laughs) Come on, I don't want you to miss this. 
Should you announce to the whole group, hey, everybody, look, Doug is about to lose it. No. If you have any care, any love in you at all, you'll look directly at Doug and you'll go, Doug, don't take another step. Now, he may be insulted that you interrupted his conversation. He may even feel offended that you're being too direct with him. But when he realizes what you're doing and the purpose and how much danger he was in, he'll actually thank you for it. That's a picture of what God has asked us to do. So in the original scenario about Bill, the businessman who has the big black Bible on his desk at work, and who calls himself a Christian and says the business is on business, Christian principles, and yet he's falsifying insurance claims. What should you do with Bill? He's your business partner. I would suggest that as a Christian, you should go and say, Bill, there's some things that really concern me about our business. I don't know if you're aware or not, but there's some serious questions being raised about your credibility. I want to talk to you about that. And if Bill gets defensive and goes, well, who are you to challenge me? I mean, your life's not perfect. Just, oh no, far from it. In fact, you want to talk about my life? Let's do it. I'm a wide open book. I'll be glad to talk about my issues too and the places that I'm falling short. And if Bill says, look, the Bible says don't judge. It says he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Then I would look at Bill and go, Bill, Those who cast stones do so in order to hurt and kill. I'm not casting stones. I'm casting a lifeline to you. I'm concerned that you don't understand how much damage is being done. Let's talk about that. Now, Bill may not appreciate that at the moment, but you will know that you've done the right thing, and you will know that God now has a way to work in Bill's life because somebody is being totally truthful with him and bringing grace and truth together. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the teachings of the Bible, may push back because the only thing you've ever heard is judge not, judge not, judge not, judge not, judge not, judge not. That's all you know. That's the best known verse in the Bible, by the way. It's not John 3.16. And it's not Jesus wept. The best known verse in the Bible is judge not lest ye be judged. You have no right to judge anything. Wow, if there was ever a verse taken out of context, that's it. So let's look at the context of that verse. Look at this. Matthew 7, 3 to 5 is the context. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, everybody's reading this, right? You're looking closely. How can you say to your brother, look, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, look closely at what Jesus taught us to do because we're learning from Jesus here. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye And then leave your brother alone because it's absolutely none of your business. Oh, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. No, that's what we want it to read. That's what the culture thinks it says. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Saying, yeah, look at yourself first. You should always first look in the mirror before you look through the window. If something's going haywire... Wise people who are humble and conscientious always look in the mirror first. That's what Jesus is teaching. Get the 
plank out of your own eye. Understand, yeah, I have all kinds of imperfections and limitations and blind spots. But God's helping me with those, and I'm serious about changing them. But notice what it really says. Get the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, you mean I'm supposed to talk to him about the speck in his eye? You mean I'm supposed to cast not stones, but a lifeline? Yeah, that's what Jesus is really teaching. We're supposed to reach out and help people. That's why Romans 12, 9 says, love must be sincere. It's interesting, the word for sincere there, and this is describing life within the body of Christ. It's ahypocritas. It means the opposite of hypocrisy. No mask, no two-facedness, no hypocrisy, utterly sincere. What that means, if somebody comes up and uh, they'd ask me to pray for somebody who was in the hospital and they come up and say, hey, thank you for praying for my grandmother. She's gotten better now. I should say, you know what? I forgot to pray for her. I'm so sorry. That's sincerity. That's not what they want to hear, but that's sincerity. That means when somebody comes up and says, Pastor Rex, that's the best sermon. I want you to know, brother, that sermon ought to be in print. Sometimes I ought to say, it is. Billy Graham, 1968, okay? We've got to be sincere in the body of Christ. And then one final passage. Matthew 18 gives the prototype or the paradigm for that. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let me tell you how I've practiced this through the years. If someone comes and says something to me about someone, I first of all insist, look, do you have a relationship with that person? Yeah, You need to go and do what this says to do. You need to go. So I don't want to be the designated confronter of everybody, okay? Not only is that not right, that's just not healthy. Okay? So we've got to keep people accountable to grow up and be responsible themselves. And look, if it doesn't get resolved, you need to bring one or two more with you. That kind of ups the ante. It increases the pressure and the accountability. And then if it still is not resolved and the person is continuing in blatant hypocrisy, then you need to bring it to leaders of the church. And by the way, when it says tell it to the church in the cases, the tragic cases where the person is simply unwilling to repent... I don't think that means you stand up on Sunday morning and, uh, or Saturday evening and tell it to the 3,312 people who were in attendance at a Grace campus last weekend. I don't think that's what it means for us. I think the best application of this, that for us is that you would tell it to the leaders of the church and appropriate action would be taken. So as we close, let me ask you a question. Do you have phonies and hypocrites in your life? What are you doing about it? David went through a season of hypocrisy in his own life. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. 
Oh, he still went to the synagogue. He slapped high fives with people. He glad-handed folks and gave a hug, and he smiled big. But the word began to get around, and people knew that David was a hypocrite. One of his dear friends, the prophet Nathan, God put it on his heart to go to David and confront him about his sin. David must have, or Nathan must have not slept much the night before. I imagine he went very, very nervous, knowing he had imperfections of his own. But Nathan went to David, and he, after some small talk, he said, Hey, David, I've got an issue I'd like to get your opinion on. There was a very poor man. He has a wonderful little family. He's a real family guy, and they don't have much at all. In fact, they only have one little lamb. That the lamb doesn't stay on the pasture. It really kind of stays in the home. It's really a pet for the children. And, and just next door is a very wealthy dude. Uh, he's got all kinds of livestock and flocks. And, but when the wealthy guy had a friend come into town, when they were preparing for the meal, the wealthy guy went next door and got the poor man's only lamb and slaughtered it for the meal. David, tell me, what do you think ought to be done with a guy like that? And David in anger said, a guy like that ought to be killed. And Nathan, with a tear in his eye, no doubt, said, David, you are that man. God brought you from being a little shepherd boy. He blessed your life beyond belief. And if you had lacked anything, if you'd just asked him, he would have given you even more. You're that man. You went and took your neighbor's wife. And although God may be forgiving, there will be consequences. When David got alone after that confrontation and went through the full experience of repentance, he voiced a prayer that was written down as a psalm. And I close with this. And this ought to be the prayer of all of our hearts. If we detect any phoniness, any need for repentance in our lives, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. Bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, 
you will not despise. Help us, God, with people in our lives who are so difficult because of the duplicity and the hypocrisy. Help us to have the wisdom and the courage to do what Nathan did, to do what the Bible instructs, and to challenge them in love with a motive of restoring to complete fellowship. And Father, help us in our own lives if we're going through seasons of hypocrisy where we've fallen far short of your standards and we're living in blatant disobedience, I pray that today would be a day when we understand a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In Jesus' name, amen.